This is The Church's The World, Chapter 1, Episode 3, the second part of the background information on the history of the King James Version of the Bible. If you will recall, last week we learned about King James, as well as the reasons why he wanted a new translation of the Bible. We also touched the history of many of the men who participated in the translation. This week, we'll learn about the translation process, what happened when the translation was completed, and we'll even learn if William Shakespeare contributed to the work. So let's get started. During the translation process, in order to keep the entire work consistent, a procedure based upon 14 rules was established. Specifically, and in the language of the time, number one, the ordinary Bible read in the church, commonly called the Bishop's Bible, to be followed, and as little altered as the original will permit. Number two, the names of the prophets and the holy writers, with the other names in the text, to be retained as near as may be, accordingly as they are vulgarly used. Number three, the old ecclesiastical words to be kept, as the word church, not to be translated congregation. Number four, when any word hath divers significations that may be kept which hath been most commonly used by the most eminent fathers, being agreeable to the propriety of the place and the analogies of faith. Number five, the division of chapters to be altered either not at all or as little as may be, if necessity so require. Number six, no marginal notes at all to be affixed but only for the explanation of the Hebrew or Greek words which cannot, without some circumlocution, so briefly and fitly be expressed in the text. Number seven, such quotations of places to be marginally set down as shall serve for the fit reference of one scripture to another. Number eight, each particular man of each company to take the same chapter or chapters, and, having translated or amended them severally by himself where he thinks good, all to meet together to confirm what they have done, and agree for their part what shall stand. Number nine, as any one company hath dispatched one book in this manner, they shall send it to the rest, to be considered of seriously and judiciously, for his majesty is very careful on this point. Number ten, if any company, upon the review of the book shows sent, shall doubt or differ upon any places, to send them word thereof, to note the places, and therewithal to send their reasons, to which, if they consent not, the difference to be compounded at the general meeting, which is to be of the chief persons of each company at the end of the work. Number 11. When any place of special obscurity is doubted of, letters to be directed by authority to send any learned man in the land for his judgment of such a place. Number 12. Letters to be sent from every bishop to the rest of his clergy, admonishing them of this translation in hand, and to move and charge as many as, being skillful in tongues, have taken pains in that kind, to send their particular observations to the company, either at Westminster, Cambridge, or Oxford, according as it was directed before in the king's letter to the archbishop. Number 13. The directors in each company to be the deans of Westminster and Chester for Westminster, and the king's professor in Hebrew and Greek at the two universities. Number 14. The translations to be used, when they agree better with the text than the bishop's Bible, Tyndall's, Coverdell's, Matthew's, Whitchurch, and Geneva. After the initial set of instructions, a fifteenth rule was added. Three or four of the most ancient engraved divines in either of the universities, not employed in translating, to be assigned to be overseers of the translation, 
for the better observation of the fourth rule. And remember, the fourth rule in my language was if any word differs significantly, they were to keep the one most commonly used by the most eminent fathers, as long as it was agreeable to the propriety of the place and analogies of the faith. Of course, you will probably note that rule number three superficially differs from my definition of the word church as I laid out in the first episode, but my interpretation is that they actually define the same. And there's no doubt that the usage of some of the words has changed over the past 400 years. Why else would you call the prophets and the holy writers' names vulgar? Well, it's because the word vulgar back then meant the common language, not as we reuse it today. From 1605 to 1606, the scholars engaged in private research, and then from 1607 to 1609, the work was assembled. The six groups worked separately, and once their work was complete, it was sent to the other panels for comments and revisions. The chief members of the six panels then met to make final decisions on all the suggested revisions. When the translators finished their work, one copy was sent from each of the three locations to London, where two translators from each location, six total, revised it for the final time. Dr. Miles Smith then penned the preface titled The Translators to the Readers, where he stated that the translators worked from the former translations diligently compared and revised. In their address to the readers, the translators themselves say, Truly, we never thought from the beginning that we should need to make a new translation, nor yet to make of a bad one a good one, but to make a good one better or out of many good ones, one principal good one. Dr. Smith and Bishop Wilson superintended the work as it passed through to the printing press. The translators took into consideration several pre-existing translations, specifically the Tyndale New Testament, the Coverdale Bible, the Matthews Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, and even the Reims New Testament, a Catholic translation. It is acknowledged that various pre-existing translations contributed to the King James Version, but it has been found that William Tyndale's work was heavily relied upon. In the context of history, this is quite ironic considering that Tyndale was strangled, then burned at the stake for heresy after angering King Henry VIII. Of course, a few years after he was executed, Henry VIII ordered Tyndale's Bible into the churches in England, but I'm getting ahead of myself. A 1998 scholarly analysis concluded that Tyndall's words make up about 84% of the New Testament and about 75% of the Old Testament books translated by the panels. The expenses of the work were not borne by the king, who claimed he was too poor. Yes, you heard right. The king was too poor to pay for the work he ordered. Instead, voluntary contributions from bishops and from others who are apparently better off than King James financed the endeavor. To his credit, I guess, the king rewarded the translators by giving them better titles and occupations as they became available, and also since he was head of the church by ecclesiastical promotion. The work was made available to the public in 1611, in a folio form, about 17 inches tall and 15 inches wide, and believe it or not, weighing nearly 30 pounds. Its size clearly demonstrated the intent for it to be used primarily on the pulpit to which it was chained. I guess after all that work, they didn't want it to end up on eBay. My thought concerning its mammoth size, and this is purely speculative, is that someone dropped it from the second floor, and when it landed, they all thought it sounded like an A. Two editions of that large Bible are recognized as having been produced in 1611, and there were several differences between the two. 
First, the two editions had distinctively different covers, but it also had been speculated that in some instances these were interchanged. One cover was woodcut similar to what had been used on the earlier Bishop's Bible, while the other was a refined copper plate engraving. They each also had errors and wording peculiarities. For example, one edition has Judas instead of Jesus in Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. Oops, that's not really a minor error. The other has a part of a verse repeated in Exodus chapter 24, verse 10, forming what printers dubbed a doublet. In Genesis chapter 10, verse 16, one reads the Emorite spelled with an E, and the other the Amorite spelled with an A. In addition, they each were distinguishable by the wording of Ruth 3.15. The first edition read, He went into the city, where the second reads, She went into the city. The difference has led to these to be known informally as the He and She Bibles. Most of these errors are understandable, except maybe for confusing Jesus and Judas, since versions of the Bibles in all of the early editions were constructed using printed sheets originating from several different printers, and subsequently there is very considerable variation within the editions. That same year, 1611, the New Testament was issued, and this is your word of the day, in duodecimo form. In plain modern English, this is a page of paper about four and one-half inches wide and seven inches tall. It was much more portable. In 1612, the entire Bible was issued in octavo size, about six inches wide by nine inches tall. These were produced so that individuals could have these were produced so individuals could have their own personal copy of the Bible. At the time of its printing, the King James Version became known as the Authorized Version, as it was designed to replace the Bishop's Bible as the official version for readings in the Church of England. However, there is no record of its authorization. The version was probably affected by order of the Privy Council, the king's version of an advisory cabinet, but unfortunately the records for the years 1600 to 1613 were destroyed by fire in either January 1618 or 1619. Also, after its printing, the king's printer issued no further editions of the bishop's Bible. In the first half of the 18th century, the King James Version was the primary edition used by the English-speaking non-Catholic churches. In fact, it was so dominant that the Roman Catholic Church in England in 1750 printed a revision of the 1610 Dewey Me Reims Bible. This version was published by Richard Chandler and was very much closer to the King James Version than to the original Dewey Me Reims. However, not everyone at the time was open to the new translation. There were some from the more conservative members of other churches outside of the Church of England who resisted publication of the King James Version. These were unwilling to accept anything rooted in the official Church of England or produced under the auspices of the king. After printing and distribution, the Anglican Church's King James Bible took decades to become more popular than the Protestant Church's Geneva Bible. And, in one of the great ironies of history, we now find that many Protestant Christian churches today embrace the King James Bible exclusively as the only legitimate English-language translation even though, when completed, it was not designed to be a Protestant translation. Indeed, it was printed to compete with the Protestant Geneva Bible, and it was printed by authorities who throughout most of history were hostile to Protestants, to the point of executing them. It is worthwhile to note that after England broke from Roman Catholicism in the 16th century, the Church of England, also known as the Anglican Church, continued to persecute Protestants through the 17th century. During this time, the Puritans and the Pilgrims fled the religious persecution of England 
to cross the Atlantic and start a new free nation in North America. They took with them their precious Geneva Bible and rejected the King's Bible. Therefore, the societies that would eventually become the United States were founded upon the Geneva Bible, not the King James Bible. So that's what you read today when you pick up a copy of the King James Version, right? Well, not exactly. That would be too easy. You see, the original printing was made before English spelling was standardized and when printers, as a matter of course, expanded and contracted the spelling of the same words in different places so as to achieve an even column of text. It was their version of text justification. For example, they substituted U's and V's interchangeably. Punctuation was relatively substantial and differed from current standards. When printers needed to save space, they would use ye for thee, use an a topped with a tilde for an or am, and use an ampersand for the word and. And, a few times, they inserted words when they thought a line needed to be padded. By the mid-1700s, there had become wide variation in the printed text of the version along with an unbelievable buildup of misprints, to the point that the version had become what many contemporaries considered to be shameful. Therefore, the universities of Cambridge and Oxford both sought to update the standard text. First to print was the Cambridge edition of 1760, the result of 20 years' labor by Francis Paris. The 1760 edition was reprinted unaltered in 1762 and in John Baskerville's folio edition of 1763. Oxford produced their own version in 1769, which was edited by Benjamin Blaney, though there were relatively few changes from Paris's edition but which became the Oxford Standard Edition. Both Paris and Blaney sought to remove the elements of the 1611 and subsequent editions that they believed were due to the choices of the various printers, but they also used most of the revised readings of the Cambridge editions of 1629 and 1638. They undertook the enormous task of standardizing the variation in punctuation and spelling of the original, making many thousands of minor changes to the text and each also introduced a few improved readings of their own. Stop the presses. Okay, you have to know I've been waiting to work that phrase in. But yes, you heard correctly. They inserted their own phrases. And some of the updates appear to alter the apparent sense of the original phrase. For example, the original text of Genesis 2.21 read, INSTEAD. That's the word IN, then a space, followed by the word STEAD, meaning IN THAT PLACE and that was changed to read instead, one word, meaning as an alternative. Overall, it seems that Blaney utilized the 1550 Stephanus edition of Textus Receptus instead of later editions of Biza used by the translators of the 1611 New Testament. Similar to the 1611 edition, the 1769 Oxford edition included the Apocrypha, but Blaney usually removed cross-references to the books of the Apocrypha from the notes of the Old and New Testaments, where those had been provided by the 1611 translators. In total, Blaney's 1769 translation differed from the 1611 text in approximately 24,000 places. That's right, it was different from the original King James Version in 24,000 places. Since 1769, a limited number of additional changes have been included in the Oxford Standard Text. For a while, Cambridge continued to print Bibles using the Paris text, but the market for that version waned while it grew for Blaney's version. Therefore, they began to move towards absolute standardization, and they eventually adapted Blaney's work, but deleted a few of the idiocentric Oxford spellings. 
By the mid-1800s, nearly all printings of the King James Version were derived from the 1769 Oxford text, primarily omitting Blaney's notes and cross-references, and frequently excluding the Apocrypha. Since the 19th century, the King James Version has remained almost completely unaltered, and due to improvements in printing technology, it was produced in very large editions for mass sale. The version maintained its popularity throughout the first half of the 20th century. New translations in the second half of the 20th century displaced its 250 years of dominance, and we will begin with those in the next episode. And now for a little tangent. Did William Shakespeare serve King James as a writer for the version? The reasons this legend developed are many, and at some points very complex, and quite frankly many of them are quite beyond the scope of this podcast. But the reason this rumor continues to live is quite simple. Proponents point to Psalm 46 and allege that Shakespeare slipped his name into the text. The simple story is something like this. Since Shakespeare was born in the year 1564, he would have been 46 years old in 1610 when the finishing touches were being put on the King James Version. In this version, if you count down 46 words from the top, not including the title, you read the word shake. Then if you omit the word selea and count 46 words from the bottom, you find the word spear. Therefore, Shakespeare must have tinkered with the text and added his signature. How else could one account for all those 46s to work out quite so well? As if that was not enough, William Shakespeare is an anagram of here was I, like a psalm. But reality, as usual, is not quite that simple. As we have already seen, history has preserved the names of the roughly four dozen King James Bible translators. In fact, except for a few political appointments, all the translators were well-known linguists in England. Considered the very best scholars of ancient languages, such as Hebrew and Greek, but also Aramaic, Syriac, Coptic, and Arabic. Many were also excellent writers, but they were chosen for a different reason. The translators were not concerned with what we think of as literary style, and they undoubtedly were not striving to construct a lasting work of English prose. Their charge from the king himself was to produce the most accurate English translation possible of the Bible. Remember those 15 rules? History has captured that their effort involved countless hours of disputations of the smallest details of language. Grammar, vocabulary, syntax, the comparison of words, of verses, and of clauses in the ancient languages, as well as contemporary translations in European languages, and previous English Bibles including Tyndale's, Coverdale's Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible, and the Reims Bible. There were also discussions of ancient history, theology, archaeology. Since literal accuracy was the goal, prose took a back seat. In addition, Shakespeare, according to the scholars, was not well versed in Latin nor Greek. By my personal standards, Shakespeare's Latin was excellent. He just wasn't remarkable as a scholar on the subject. There is scant evidence, though, that Shakespeare had anything beyond grammar school Greek and likely no Hebrew at all. And remember, Psalms was translated from Hebrew. Therefore, he did not possess the basic skills necessary for Bible translation. He was also not a member of the clergy, and since many of the clergy of the period considered what we refer to as playwrights and actors to be morally equivalent to brothel keepers, it's almost inconceivable anyone would have considered him as a candidate for the translation. Well, almost. In addition, although Shakespeare's works in the King James Bible have been acclaimed as the greatest examples of English literature, since at least the Victorian era, 
scholars do not consider them to be similar. Specifically, Shakespeare wrote acceptable prose, but he more often wrote in verse with the metaphorical density of his language and his invention of words and idioms setting him apart from other playwrights. But on the other hand, the King James Bible is entirely in prose and generally avoids complex metaphor except possibly for the parables, but those also were literally translated. Further, the vocabulary of this version of the Bible is extremely limited. To a layperson, the King James Version sounds like Shakespeare, but only on the surface. It's written with a vocabulary modern speakers do not use, and in a style they're completely unaccustomed to. To a linguist, the language, syntax, and structure of Shakespeare and the King James Version aren't even close to being similar. But the final nail in the coffin of connection is quite simple. The one piece of evidence that forms the basis of the entire legend is the word use and word count. This concept has many problems. First, the 46 count from the end of the chapter has to leave out the word Selah. It's not a word from the actual psalm, but an indicator of performance, of which even modern scholars are unsure of its meaning. Yet, there it is on the page. And if you include it, the word spear is 47 words from the end, not 46. Furthermore, and most importantly, shake and spear are in many earlier English Bibles as well, in roughly the same places, between 45 and 47 words from the beginning and from the end. Wait, stop the record just for emphasis. The words were in earlier translations in the same places. Translations that predate Shakespeare's birth. The plausibility is quickly evaporating. And for the anagram? Well, I guess his mother was in on it too. That's the episode for this week. Join us next week when we dive into the new Revised Standard Version. As I mentioned last week, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at thechurchestheworld.com. Comments, questions, and essentially any correspondence can be sent to comments at thechurchestheworld.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the term The Churches the World as four separate words. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.